Hello, welcome to the 50 Minute Hour. This is Corey. Today I'm joined by Calvin and a new guest, a friend of Calvin's, uh, Hank. Hank, why don't you say something about yourself? What brings you on uh, on here today? Hi, I'm Hank Sutherland. I'm a student at the University of Kentucky, and I am here to have my tarot cards read. And we'll talk about that more. Don't, you know, just go ahead and shut it off. I, I have some big reveals on tarot. <sighs> so what's new with you this week, Corey? Well, my... Um, Friend Nathan Jacobs, uh, resident demonologist at uh, my parish, who's been doing some sort of a film lately. He's done some films in the past, including Killing Poe, um, has asked me to co-write a script uh, for a film he wants to direct about our personal experiences with the occult, um, sort of rolled up into one. Um, and looks like it's going to take place in Asheville, North Carolina. Um, so we're looking to fundraise for that. So if any rich viewers out there, uh, want to donate to a good cause to promote decent horror film, uh, you know, please, uh, get in contact with me. Um, but other than that, that's, that's about it. Right. Um, I guess we can go right into the tarot cards if you'd like. Um, would you give kind of a background to that? Cause I know for me personally, I was a bit, uh, skeptical, a bit scared of what the context of that is. So if you would explain that real quick. Mm-hmm. So tarot is not divination. It's not magic. It's not um, occult in the in the common parlance of that word. Um, so tarot goes back ostensibly to the Italian early Renaissance, where it was basically a playing card game that was made commissioned by rich people to show off their wealth. Uh, the earliest ex- example we have being the Visconti deck, which is very beautiful, and it's steeped in uh, Christian imagery. Okay, so where does this whole divination thing uh, come from, and why is it that I would not recommend you go to 99% of tarot readers? Okay, so that is from the gypsies. So I think I talked about this in the last podcast, is that when the Enlightenment came about, anything that had any woohoo or mystery about it was disintegrated and totally taken off of religion. Religion became something that was basically purely rational. This kind of plays into the Protestant Reformation and all that. So astrology uh, or um, uh, alchemy, okay, any of that stuff, which the church fathers, if you read, you know, incorporate into the writings as like a real thing, okay? Um, You know, Genesis saying God put the stars in the sky to be a signs for man and so on. Um, Or the church fathers talking about rocks and plants having all these various, you know, what we would think of today as alchemical properties that aren't directly observable by the scientific method uh, empirically. Um, That was all thrown to the side. So what happens is that basically people who are steeped in the occult, uh, the gypsies, take all this stuff up or, you know, various weird occult groups, the Illuminist and the Bavarian Illuminati or whatever, they all take that up and the Masons and the Jesuits or whatever. and, And that sort of becomes the occult weird stuff. Okay. So... Unfortunately, what that means is that all this stuff is now tied up with things that you should reasonably be very cautious about. And then the new age happens and this stuff gets even further muddled. Um, So what that means for tarot is that it went from being basically a card game or something you use to understand archetypes. Um, You know, the way I see it in regards to modern psychology, basically not very different uh, essentially than a Rorschach test. But a Rorschach test is, you know, more about your inner individual subjectivity as a person or like a TAT, um, whereas tarot is that, but more tied into your relation to the collective unconscious or um, the specific archetypes about the tarot that a tarot reader is supposed to understand and know. 
and uh, bounce that off what the querent, uh, the person having their tarot read, uh, is saying about the cards. So I'm not telling your future. I'm not doing divination or any of that. I'm not, you know, working with demons. Now that being said, the reason you should be cautious about going to most tarot readers is because they're steeped in this this divide that came through the Enlightenment and what the gypsies did with tarot or what New Age people did with tarot. And they are oftentimes, I mean, either it's just dumb, you know, cold reading um, for your effect, that sort of stuff, or they are actually getting in contact with demonic spirits. Okay, now what what does this differentiate with something like, say, the Ouija board? Well, the Ouija board, the, the teleology of the, the Ouija board is just inherently to put you in contact with the spirit world, okay? That's not the inherent teleology of tarot or astrology or astronomy, okay? Or, uh, sorry, not astronomy or alchemy, okay? So there's not really a way you can use an Ouija board that you're not going to mess yourself. I mean, you could use it as firewood, I guess, but you can't, you can't use it. <laughs> you can't use it like, oh, I'm going to do the Ouija board, but not in a divinatory occult way. No, I mean, it is designed specifically for that purpose. And even if it's like a Hasbro game that's made out of plastic, all right, the way that is supposed to function um, is to put you in contact with the spirit realm. So don't generalize what I'm saying here about the tarot because the tarot has a legitimate tradition that is not a cult or divinatory that was perverted, okay? There are other things that just in their base design is meant to be a cult and in the bad sense and uh, to put you in contact basically with demons, okay? So just putting that out of the air. Um, so again, when I'm doing tarot, I'm not, I'm not divining or prophesizing someone's future more than a psychologist is with a Rorschach test. What I'm doing is that listening to what they say about the cards with my knowledge of the archetype of the card to reference them and understand them and then sort of put them on path in, re in respect of orientation to self-knowledge in regard to the question they have. This is why, you know, asking very explicit questions with Tarot about like what your future is or any of that generally isn't going to go very well. It's, it's better to ask questions in relation to the Tarot that orient yourself towards inner knowledge, things that you suspect or you want to understand about yourself, um, but you're not exactly able to orient yourself in the right way as of yet to answer those questions. You know, like the Oracle of Delphi says, know thyself, know others know the world. Okay, so that last part, the world's my, my addition. But the point is, is like, you can't really understand the world, you can't understand other people until you understand the apparatus by which the tool by which you do that, which is yourself. Okay, so self knowledge is the most fundamental, important knowledge, the church fathers say this, Socrates says this, all the wisest ages of the world say this, okay. Now, of course, psychoanalysis comes in and says, well, you can't, you can't really know yourself because there isn't a self to know fundamentally down there, okay. And if we take the secular interpretation of that, that's very much true. But again, my point is that know yourself sufficiently to understand there isn't a self. And from there, kenosis happens, you're emptied. And that's when the divine knowledge, Sophia, whatever you want to call it, that's when it begins to fill you. That's when you can begin the path to true knowledge. Okay, so it's kind of like you got to go in the underworld, you got to die for three days, you got to resurrect, then you go and ascend to the sun, to the heavens, you join Apollo and Hyperborea, and you're just with a, a bunch of guys asexually reproducing for eternity. So we start here with tarot as an apparatus to knowing the apparatus by which you know others. So what exactly is the process of reading tarot? What are you going to be doing to Hank today? Yeah, well, Hank will ask me a question and then I'll think of a spread in relation to the question. Um, a spread just being the way you distribute the tarot cards in relation to the, the question, having each card represent something specific. Um, and then you go from there and I take Hank's input on the card and I take my knowledge of the card and relate it back to him. 
Um, as with many of these things, tarot can just sort of be very vague and it's not going to do very much. It depends on the question, how much I know about the, the person asking the question. Um, so I'm not, I don't even know the question you're going to ask yet. So, I mean, I, I don't know how, how in depth this tarot reading is going to be, <laughs> you know, cause you might ask like, uh, you know, what, what's going to happen to my cat in the next few weeks or something like that. And I'm just going to be like, I have no idea what's going on here. I see. So, um, it depends a lot on the question and, uh, you know, where I am because a lot of it is intuition. Um, real psychology, you know, even as a therapist is intuition. And there are certain days where intuition is working much better than others. And I won't really know until I'm in it, but if I'm in the zone or not. So there's All that. Right. Yeah. No, I'm a bit confused by this process. Um, would you give me an example of, say, an effective question that I might ask? Yeah. Um, so I had the the wine mom I talked about in the last podcast who asked me a question uh, in her hotel room before she started coming to church. Um, she basically asked me where she felt she was heading after telling me this sort of life story where basically she was becoming estranged from her parents and she didn't know really where she went to go. She felt like she wanted to leave, you know, Lexington and get go to other places. And she's like, where exactly am I going? And I had a really good tarot reading with her from that information that she told me before I went into it um, because she was very open with me. And I was able to orient what she was saying about the cards specifically to where she was in her life then. You know, basically, like I would get one card and she would, I would say like, well, you know, you were telling me this and she was telling me this about the card, sort of like stream of conscious. You really want to open up your mind to sort of just like stream of conscious talk about associations that come from the card. I see. Okay. And then when I talk about the card, you do that again. And then we sort of wrap it all up and we get an idea of where we're going from there. Okay. If that makes any sense. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think we can just run with it. And okay. uh, if I do it wrong, you can just tell me. So will I start with a question or? Yeah, you can talk about, you know, the question and why you're asking it. You can just ask the question. I can try to do my best from there. I mean, it, it you, you get what you put into it. It's like what Lacan says about Pascal's wager being the ultimate um, base of all true psychoanalysis. What you put in the gamble is what you get back in the pot. Okay. I see. So I guess I'll start um, similar to the wine mom you were talking about. I've always felt this, I guess, urge to go out of Lexington, being born here. Okay. Um, I felt this urge to kind of go away from Kentucky, um, maybe even out of the country, and just seeing where where I end up. Um, I'm not exactly sure how an effective question to this would be. Um, I guess, will I? Is will, that a good question? Or? Will Will you move away from Kentucky? Yes. Um, I, yeah, let me just orient it more so to what what will happen to me? Um, where am I going? And so far, I move out of Lexington. Yes, okay. Um, because that'll, that'll help me more orient it towards um, not divining your future, but actually looking at your psychological profile I in see, relation yeah. to that. Okay. So so what, what we're, I'm going to think of a spread for this. So you leaving Lexington, where are you going? How is it happening? How is that affecting you? So, yeah, so we'll do this. So we'll do, we'll do five cards. We'll just do a simple cross. All right. Okay. So I'm going to have you choose these cards and telling you what they mean. And then you choose them face down. Um, and so let's, let's just do a card to represent yourself. Just choose one of these. 
and then just put it in the middle somewhere. Let's go this one. Yeah. Okay. So this card is judgment. So judgment is major arcana. So this generally determines the pattern of the other cards you'll draw as well, especially since this is you, your ego, your your immediate conscious person. And so the the card of judgment, well, let, let's see. Let's, let's have you look at the card and you tell me what you think about watching that. Okay. Um, now I see, I guess the first thing that sticks out to me is this flag right here. Mm-hmm. I think that's the English flag, although I'm not exactly... I'm not exactly well, the English great flag, but it's ba- the English flag is based on something. Okay, interesting. Um, I guess I see it looks like almost this angelic figure, mm-hmm. although the red and dark wings make me think that there's sort of an ulterior motive there, like it's um, almost a demon or some kind of some kind of evil force. Um, it looks as if it's heralding some kind of news or playing some kind of music, whereas the I count six people. Um, I guess it looks like they're bare because, uh, of course, they're not wearing any clothing. And I'm not sure if this was customary in the time that these cards were made, although I would guess not. So um, that kind of stands out to me. Although it looks like they're... It seems as if they're looking to this figure that I guess doesn't necessarily... won't necessarily bring what they're promised. So... Generally, judgment is is the literal judgment day when Christ comes and the angels herald. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you see this in Revelation. The bodies that are buried rise up naked and they're brought to Christ for judgment and being divided in the left and right uh, to hell or to heaven, you know, so in the most simple renditions. Um, your interpretation of this is interesting because you see the angel, you, you pick up a lot of ambivalence, whereas normally this card is understood archetypically as pretty... You know, there's ambivalence in the sense of fate. You don't know whether or not you're going to be saved or not. But the angel itself and uh, everything about the card directly is not generally seen in, in an ambivalent way. But the colors you associate with the wings and your ambiguity about the bodies being naked is interesting. So it's almost like you have this will in regards to the question you're asking, which is leaving Lexington, going somewhere else. Um, but you you have, I think, pretty obvious even before we drew this card, some some hesitancy or ambivalency about what that could lead to. And mm-hmm. I think since this is the ego card, that ambivalency is going to carry over um, no matter what you do. Sort of like what Kierkegaard says, you know, uh, by all means, uh, marry and you will be miserable. By all means, do not marry and you will also be miserable. So th- there's a sense of regret, whatever you do. And right. you have to understand what, how am I going to... Uh, Go beyond regret. How am I going to embrace my fate? Amor fati, as Nietzsche will say. How do you actually... Because um, whatever you end up doing, and so far this ambivalency will carry over, it'll haunt you. And so you, I think fundamentally you, the more essential question is not even whether or not I should, but how do I deal with conquering my regret of regardless of my decision in either case? Okay. So let's 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 look in, into that and following the the rest of these cards. So let's do a card that actually represents um, Lexington. Okay. All right. Um, and since this is where you're coming from, we'll put it in what's typically understood as the past or before the ego, which from your orientation would be towards be, you. Uh, well, no, uh, left or right. So it'll oh, be right. left. You're left. Yeah. Okay. So what do you see in in the Ten of Cups here? Uh, now should I keep? Should I keep the question in mind or should I just you kind of go? Freely associate, yeah, go over to the question, whatever you feel is comfortable. It doesn't really matter here. 
Yeah, no, I'm not super close to it. Although from my point of view, it looks like a family of four, husband and a wife kind of on this farm plane. Um, there are two children playing. I'm guessing a boy and a girl, but I really can't tell from this. Uh, it looks like there's they're standing on on some kind of field that doesn't necessarily look as as grown, as beautiful as the rest. Uh, like there's a river or a stream on the left. There's a green field, whereas they're standing on more of, I guess, trodden land. Mm -hmm. um, although I would guess that this is also all a part of their property. Mm -hmm. So I'm not exactly sure what this represents. Mm -hmm. well, I think I see a red house in the background and of course plenty of vegetation, some trees. How do you think, um, one by one, tell me, what do you think these people are thinking? Hmm. I think the children are just playing. It seems like they're just having a good time. They're in the moment. And I'm going to look a bit closer. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I almost get a sense of of arrogance from the family. Really? Almost. I'm okay. sure you've heard the uh, poem of Ozymandias, look yeah. at look at this, look at my works and despair. Um, although I, I almost see they're saying, hey, look at all we have, all of this green pasture land. Okay. I, lo I love your interpretation of the card so far, of both of these, because you pick up on a shadow that's inherent in even positive cards. I mean, this is mm -hmm. arguably one of the most positive minor arcana cards in all of tarot. Okay. It's often understood as ideal happiness. You've attained the fundamental end of all your desires. You've, you have land, you've prospered a family. This is Job after God returns to him double-fold all the things he took away. Okay. So, but you, you say two things that stand out to me. One, you say trodden land, which is interesting because I think that's very significant in what you're saying, how you feel about Lexington. It's, it's something you feel you've thoroughly explored and there's not really much else to, to look at, which may or may not be true. Maybe Lexington actually holds a lot of things you're not even aware of yet, mm -hmm. like symposiums, you know? Yeah. Um, but, uh, so there's, there's this, uh, but the, but right so then you 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 see the you see the kids as being happy but then you see these this parental figure which you know I'm going to understand in some to some degree relating to your own parental life um, to your attitude towards your parents but you see you see them as arrogant like uh, you know almost as if the way your parents look at you is just an extension of themselves and they have mm -hmm. a certain arrogance in relation to that and maybe to some degree that's also what is pushing you out of Lexington because you want to break free from being in a mere extension of your parents and actually establish your own identity. And as long as you're in Lexington, it's difficult to do that because you're still just an extension of your mother ego, extension of your father's ego. You're not your own ego yet. You're not judgment. You're not someone who has rendered final judgment for who you are as a person. You remain merely this kid who's just playing around in trodden fields, right? Um, so that, that I think is, is interesting because that says a lot about your impetus for actually leaving Lexington. All right. Does that make sense? Yes. And I think it's, I won't say it's completely accurate, mm -hmm. but it's, it's very good. Okay. So let's, let's put the card, um, orientation to your right, which will be future. And this will be okay. the city doesn't, you don't have to name the city, but it's just where you'll be going. And it's not literally where you're going, but your psychological projection of it. Oh, sorry. This, right here, this is not okay. So, sorry. the 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 weight uh, the Smith weight uh, deck we got has bonus cards that are not traditionally in tarot. These are just artworks. They're nice looking pictures. Um, 
This is not supposed to be a card you draw in tarot. It doesn't have any archetypal methodology. Um, so <laughs> I'm sorry. We should have taken these out before we did. We just opened this deck from the pack. So, Does that say something about me that I would draw that? No, th I mean, uh, a, uh, a gypsy might say so. <laughs> okay. Um, let's, let's try again. Although it is interesting. I mean... <laughs> What Maybe happens can, if I draw another one of those? Is that gonna is <laughs> that gonna I spell think trouble? Like two or three in the Smith weight. So okay. if you draw another one of these, we'll we'll have to start we'll have to start doing <laughs> things. But uh, uh this one no, is that, a good, that's a real card. Right, okay, good. I was getting nervous. <laughs> okay, so what do you see in the Five of Swords? Um, so I see there's this tall man standing with a sword, and I'm getting kind of a medieval feel to it. Almost, mm -hmm. I guess it's the green. The green tunic or the green cloak is reminding me of Robin Hood. Mm -hmm. Just kind of that medieval English uh, green, green clothes man running through the woods. It, I noticed that it looks like he's carrying two swords at once. Mm -hmm. And so, he's well, I guess wielding. two swords in one, in one hand, whereas in another sword or in another hand, he has another sword as well, which is interesting. Um, I'm going to lean in, try and see if I can see more of this picture. I see there's one man in the distance. It looks like he's almost crying. Mm -hmm. uh, just his posture. It looks like his hands are up, covering his face. And yeah, the <laughs> I'm getting nervous as to what this spells about my future. Uh huh. Although also it looks like there's just, hmm, I think this guy's bald right here. Although, yeah, there's just this man... He's, it looks like he's carrying another piece of clothing in addition to what he's wearing, although he has another piece draped over his shoulder. And it seems like he's just walking away. Maybe the giant red-headed green clothed man is scaring him off or something. But yeah, that's what I see. Would you like me to elaborate more or? Uh, well, let me say something. You can elaborate from there. So mm -hmm. the, the archetype of this card is usually like um, what's called a Feric victory, which is... Um, when you've won the battle, but at such a great cost, it would have been better or just as the same if you lost or didn't go right. into battle at all. So it's like you, it's a sense of coming to what you thought were your desires and it actually being that you were in the right place the whole time. Okay. You didn't really need to go through that your desires were actually false or what you were oriented towards. And it's a sense where this guy had good friends and he sort of challenged them to a duel or something went on and he's won the duel and he's happy about that. But, you know, now his friends are sort of distraught and their right. pride is wounded. Right. Um, and he has two swords, you know, like it's like that meme, you know, why does, you know, Jack, why does your mom let you have two hot dogs, you know? But it's like now the the friend is all bitter and, you know, so you've, you've won this at what cost? So you're, you're saying about the one guy having uh, clothes and then he's carrying an extra pair of clothes. Um, I don't think I've ever actually noticed that before. That's interesting. It's, it's almost like these friends you sent away, um, you've given him two cloaks to wear. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. if someone asks you to go one mile, go two miles, you know, if someone asks you for a, a, a cloak, give them your, your coat and sword and everything. And you've kept two swords to yourself, but you're like, yeah, you can have these dumb unsharpened swords or whatever, but they don't even want them. They just drop them on the ground and leave. All he takes is the cloak. Um, so you've, you sort of strip people of their phallus of their sword, their pride, their actual means by which they penetrate into the world and defeat their enemies and over. So it's like you're moving to wherever you're going is is at this great expense. And and these people can be stood literally as actual people in your life or they can be understood as aspects of your psyche or your persona. Mm -hmm. um, 
these sort of parts of you that you're carrying over into where you're going, um, but you're having to sacrifice at the same time. So it's almost like on one hand, you feel like an extension of, of where you're coming from, of Lexington. It's like Lexington has been this parent to you and that you just feel like you're just an extension of Lexington you want to get away from that. But at the same time, there are valuable parts in that extension that you are sacrificing in moving away from it. I see. And what I was talking about earlier with this ambivalency that's going to haunt you, whether you stay or go, it seems especially if you go because that, that ambivalency intensifies as you move away from that extension. That extension in some way is a psychological safeguard for how you're dealing with that ambivalency. And when you leave that, that chain breaks. And now you have to deal with it all on your own. All right. If that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. Okay. So let, let's do um, two more cards. So we have you, we have where you're coming from, we have where you're going. So we'll do um, a card to represent sort of the overarching or super ego of the whole situation. And we'll do a card to represent the id or the passion or okay. the, uh, the appetitive in the platonic sense of the whole situation. All right, so these will tell me something about your more um, occult desires, which is to say your hidden desires. Um, which one do you want to do first? Um, let's do let's do the ego. I'm not a, I don't. No, we, this is the ego. We have the id and the superego. Oh, never mind. Let's do the id. Okay, let's choose an id Is card. that more of the emotional? The uh, Yes, immediately, yes. I see. It's the primal emotion. Because I took the a- The reptilian uh, emotion. Yeah, I took a psychology class last semester, but I don't remember everything. Put it below. And they, right taught, you, they taught you about the id? <laughs> yes, just a little bit. Oh, okay. Well, they briefly brushed on that okay. and Freud and- Yeah, what did they say about Freud? He's wrong um, and we should forget about him. They said most of what he said was wrong, <laughs> yeah. although we use his ideas okay. uh, for modern well, psychology. Well, at least they admit that. Yeah. It's hard to even get that nowadays. Yeah. Okay, so we have the King of Swords. It's interesting as an id card because the King of Swords, well, let, let's have you say things about it first. Okay. Um, I see, uh, I mean, just the word King of Swords implies that it's a king sitting on this throne and... It looks like the background of the throne. I think I see some butterflies, a mm -hmm. couple of crescent moons on there. Although it's just this sort of gray throne extending to the skies. We don't see the end of it. So as far as I can tell, it goes up forever indefinitely. Although from the side of that, um, on the king's left, on from my perspective on my right, there are a couple of birds flying in the background. I see a cloud. It, it looks like an abnormal cloud, almost like like it's coming from a factory, like from some industrial object. Although beneath that, I see a mixture of grasslands and it looks like a beach mm -hmm. because there's a sandy color as well as water to the side, a couple of trees. And of course, this king is very, very tall because um, the trees don't even go up to his knees. What do you think the king is thinking? Um, I think... I guess it goes back to this. I mentioned the Ozymandias idea earlier, mm -hmm. although um, basically this is all my land. Look at all that I have. And also, I guess, sort of issuing a challenge. Like mm -hmm. if anyone wants to try and, if anyone wants to try and take this, go ahead. Yeah. I I tower above you. So good luck. That's a very good reading, I think. So mm -hmm. so you've had two swords cards. So swords, I'll, I'll just say elementally, um, well, cast wise, they're philosophers, kings, lawmakers, but... Elementally, they're air. So so air is above here. It doesn't have much of a care. It's all over the place. It's not emotional. It's very intellectual. Okay. 
So to have that for your id, especially the king, right? It's almost like who carries this big sword and he's very tall and he's rising up, you know, infinitely into the clouds. It's almost like you you have a very intense effort to separate yourself from your id, which isn't a bad thing mm -hmm. necessarily, but it seems like there's a sense in which your separation from your immediate passion could also cloud the underlying reasons for why you do most things, including why you would actually go away from here, which might be relating to everything we said so far. But also you pick up again on this arrogance that we got from the Ten of Cups. Um, so that arrogance playing some role or some orientation in relation to the id or the passion and unconscious, okay? Um, and then you, you, so you were talking about the king issuing a challenge. So it's almost like in relation to the, the judgment or to the ego that you, again, you feel that in order to properly individuate, you have to make a contest. You have to stand up and challenge these people who are coming to you, which could be understood, again, as literal people as we have with the Five of Swords or uh, actual aspects of your psyche. So it's almost like you have these various personae within you that you're sort of challenging. Um, and again, moving away seems to just sort of put them off to, so you don't have to deal with them anymore, which is already what it seems to be going on here mm -hmm. as we are here in present um, with something like the King of Swords, which, which is already sort of like, I have all these lower passions and desires beneath me, but I don't need to concern myself with them because they're, they're my subjects. I am ruler over them, which again is a good attitude. It's a very platonic, it's very patristic church father attitude. Like my desires are beneath me and I'm, I'm the ruler over them. Um, but at the same time, there's a shadow to this, which is where if we, if we take that arrogance too intensely, if we don't recognize the shadow or these uh, inferior subjects within ourselves and the role they actually do play within ourselves, if we push them off too much, we, we fail to see how they inevitably do control us, no matter how much we consciously try to get rid of them. Um, okay. And so the, this is a sort of wary card, I would say, in respect to it's a good orientation to have while simultaneously not getting too engrossed in it. And so far, you still have a conscious awareness of knowing yourself in relation to your passions and desires. Hmm. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it does. Okay. So we'll, we'll do the superego card and then we'll sort of do an overall reading and we'll see where you feel about that. All right. Okay. I'll go for the uh, top one. Okay. Just mix things up. Is this a good one? Yeah, let's go with that. All right. So wands, this is the first wand. Um, we go from a king to a wand, so that's interesting. Okay, so what do you what do you see here? Um, so I see, of course, there's there's a hand. It looks kind of ghostly, just because mm -hmm. there's no color to it. Holding this stick, um, I guess my my initial thought is the traditional grandma saying, "Hey, go go get me a stick. I'm gonna <laughs> whip you with that." Yeah. Although I also see there's life on that stick. Mm -hmm. um, there's some vegetation sprouting from it, and I'm interested by this kind of this cloud um because if the photo if the hand on the photo were more so to the right then that would imply that there's more of an arm to it although this cloud just insinuates that this hand and this wrist is coming out of nowhere uh from thin air mm -hmm. so i'm interested in that um also of course it's very large the trees are in the foreground very small uh, barely even the size of one of the fingernails on this hand. I'd like to take a closer look at that object mm -hmm. in the background. Yeah, pick it up. It almost looks like a castle, like the Walt Disney castle mm -hmm. in a way. Um, 
So I guess I see this castle. I guess one of my initial thoughts is that perhaps the hand is coming for this castle, although just the way that it's oriented suggests that, I don't know, it, they don't seem to be related, mm -hmm. although I guess perhaps they could be if the hand were to move more. Okay, so <clears throat> any ace card is always the raw, pure creation of that energy, of that suit. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the cloud in the hand is representing... God's creation ex nihilo, out of nothing. Or if you want like a more Gnostic interpretation, uh, the Demiur is creating out of the raw materia. Um, and what we have here with wands is, this would have made much more sense as an id card even, but uh, in really reversing your id and your superego cards would be very interesting. But I mean, we'll stick with what we're going here. So the 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 wand is sort of in, a, in the case, the lowest of the suits. It's the most raw. It's the most passionate the most id like it's sexual it's fire it's passion it's and the ace of wands in particular is very phallic um and the the raw creation of the eros of the sexual energy of the passionate energy sort of spurring lighting the fire beneath one's feet to spur them on to travel wands is often also associated with travel with going places so it, it makes sense in relation to the overall question um what you're saying, you're you're mystified by the hand of God creating out of nothing, uh, and you notice that the the wand has life growing from it. The castle, I think, the castle could even be understood in respect to the ten of cups from earlier. It's it's where you're coming from. Okay, and then you have this hand of God out of nowhere, sort of saying, "Go forth and conquer in the name of." of Christ, you know, sort of like the Constantine. It's this It's this sort of sign that comes out of nowhere in a dream or in a vision or impetus. Um, and it's this very raw, passionate impetus to go somewhere, which sort of relates to where the other cards have been leading us. Um, so it's like that you have this idyllic, seemingly idyllic Disneyland where you're coming from. Um, but now you have this quest to go on, a hero's journey to go on, something that pushes you out of the mundanity of your existence. And I think this this aspect of the eros, of the passion of, how do I want to say, this quest for something beautiful, quest for something transcendent, quest for something spiritual almost, um, a thirst for something spiritual, a thirst for something that goes beyond, um, is what is sort of pushing you out of Lexington simultaneously. Hmm. Um, and that's the overall you know, super ego, I mean in a very broad sense, you're not in a limitedly Freudian sense, in the sense of something that's over your ego, overarching, and usually even spiritual, um, driving you out to quest and to conquer. Does that make any sense? Yes, it does. Okay, so now let's do an overall look at what's going on here. So we, we go back to the judgment, this idea of individuation, which you're associating with ambivalency, with the angels and the nakedness, the newness. In judgment, we have no clothes on us. We are naked before the eyes of God. We have nothing to shield us. We rely in everyday life on defense mechanisms and lies we tell about ourselves to sort of shield us from our own faults and, and more consciously to shield us from the judgment of others. But on judgment day, that all is eradicated. The very particles of physics break down so that there is no mediation between the light of God and us. We're fully revealed. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's terrifying. And there's a terrifying aspect to being judged by God because of that. Um, but within judgment, it's purification. The light of God is the fires of hell. 
that purifies gold as through fire and all our impurities are removed. So there's fundamentally in the ego here, a quest for cleansing, a quest for going into death and rising again, being called to judgment, which is painful, but necessary to become who we're meant to be, to become saints, gods. Okay. So this quest of this question of um, going somewhere else other than Lexington in general revolves around this idea or the search for purification, but also being hesitant because of this ambivalency that's going to follow you along. All right. And then we're we're coming from Lexington, right? We have this 10 of cups, normally very idyllic, but your understanding of it more so like kids are just sort of doing whatever they want, but the parents are just sort of arrogantly bombastically um, seeing all this, including the kids as just like this extension of themselves that they have and this sort of Ozymandian, sort of like pride in in what they own and the sort of feeling that I'm picking up on of being just a part of that, of this extension, whether those are literally your parents or Lexington itself, Mm -hmm. it's difficult for you to attain judgment, to attain purification, to attain a heroic individuation being stuck in that mode on trodden ground. Then this orientation of where we would be going, sort of a fearic victory, right? Five of swords and a feeling that there's some sort of sacrifice of that, that you're being protected by within being an extension of that. So having to balance between those two things. Okay. And then in the id, this feeling of rising up, conquering, challenging, issuing forth. Again, a sort of quest for purification. You're wanting to prove your dominance, to prove that you are the top, the king, um, and also cutting off your lower passions, your lower desires, um, but also this arrogance you associate between the Ten of Cups and now into the King of Swords, maybe even that being a part of the extension that's negative within the Ten of Cups and into the id, into the lower part of the self, which is this arrogance of assuming you're always immediately above your emotion, immediately above um, the lower parts when you should have the correct orientation in that respect, but also be very aware and cautious that they do affect you. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe even especially so in regards to why you want to move out of Lexington. And then finally, the Ace of Wands into this impetus, this raw erotic, in the in the broader sense, eros, uh, to, to move away from the idyllic Disneyland castle and to venture forth and to conquer. All right. Now, I know that earlier you mentioned that it would be different if we reversed the... Mm-hmm. Is it the id and the superego? Superego, yes. Yes. Just because it makes much more intuitive sense in that okay. way. Because the, the king of swords is very much a superego yeah. card. And then the ace of wands is almost the id card par excellence. Probably next to the devil. Okay. Um, so it's interesting that you you had those so switched. Okay. That's all I was really saying. I see. Yeah. So it would be more inaccurate if we no, if we switch. You them. could do that because all I'm relying on is what you're saying about the card in relation oh, to see. what we've named the card. Yeah. The name of the card, the name of the father, the law of the father, the name that we designate signify the signifier by, that's what you're relating to me. So you could switch this deck with any of the other cards and we could get another interpretation that would be signifying different things. It's not like some god has chosen these cards specifically for your relation. Like that's divination. That's not what I'm doing. Yeah. It doesn't matter what card we get. I mean, we could have gone off something with this. It's just <laughs> that there's not a methodological interpretation of the archetype here. I okay. could have done it. It just wouldn't be formal, I guess is what I'm saying. 
I mean, we could get a bologna sandwich in there, and it's just what you're telling yeah, me about I the just bologna sandwich. It's just bologna that's, sandwich. that's not going to tell me much about you, right? <laughs> so I need I need specific archetypes that I'm knowledgeable about to work with. Right. But if we switch the cards, I could give you another interpretation if we wanted to do it. Just it would just uh, it would be telling us something different than what I've told you before already. But it's also kind of spoiled because we've already talked about these cards in relation to where they were in yeah. relation to this question. So it would just be kind of weird. I see. Uh, should we move on to another question now, I guess? Well, I mean, I, I don't know. Did we? I felt like we wanted to talk about more in this podcast as well, no, than just the tarot? Or was it all just tarot? Or you think it was accurate at all? Like what you think of the interpretation? Yeah. Um, so I think that in a broad sense, it was it was accurate. Like there, there's certainly some feelings of me wanting to leave, um, I guess, especially you said that it seems as if I feel I've seen everything there is to see here. And I guess I've, yeah, that sentiment was really relatable to me. Although, um, I guess there are other things, like you said, I guess I'm unwilling to let my emotions mm -hmm. up to the surface and I may be interpreting that wrong. I guess I'm more so disagreed on that aspect, although- You feel you do let your emotions out. Yes, and it, of course it depends on the context, it depends on the people. Yeah. Although, yeah, I think generally it was a very accurate description. Uh huh. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it's sort of like you're telling me things like I like to eat pie and I'm saying, well, you're a pie eater. It's really not that spectacular. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, what Tara really does, like a Rorschach, is sort of to break the ice between an, an analyst and an analyst. I in, see. In, in, the psych, in the psychoanalytic context, I guess. Um, but it is, it is a nice, like, fast-paced even fast food way to look into a person's identity or yeah. psyche. It's really not that amazing or spectacular of a thing, but people are always very interested that I know how to read tarot. And so people have asked me, and I guess Calvin and Jacob wanted me to do a live reading. So here we are. How would one learn to read tarot? Like if yeah, I so were to get my own question. deck, how would I learn to do this? I, I do, I do want to say also about my past with tarot. So I was actually trained, um, I was trained by several tarot readers. One was, but the main one was, who trained me personally was a Kabbalist. And uh, he would actually sit around Washington Square Park in New York City and wear a wizard's cap. If, if you've walked around Washington Square in the past 10 years, I'm sure you've seen him. And he was the one who really formally trained me. And I'm not a Kabbalist, so I don't use the same methodology. But I was, I was trained in an esoteric occult tradition. Um, but that being trained in psychoanalysis, that isn't really the methodology I took it to. So I sort of made my own methodology of tarot, tarotic interpretation. And tarot can be used in all sorts of methodologies, numerology, astrology, astrophysiognomy, um, the sort of gypsy, divine occult BS, uh, where it's like very specific meanings, like a three of cups, da-da-da, you're going to like, your wife is going to cheat on you and you're going to have, you know, da-da-da-da. So like very specific meanings, right? Okay, that's like the what people, most people think tarot is, okay. Um, and then I also started going to a tarot club in Brooklyn at this uh, metaphysical store uh, where we would do things like watch Pinocchio and give Gnostic interpretations of it. That was a lot of fun. And I would say, though, that my main influence in tarot and definitely the book I recommend, because most of this stuff is going to be so poisoned by New Age rigmarole, um, is Valentin Tomberg's um, 
the meditations on the tarot, a journey into Christian hermeticism. So Tom Berg was someone who was trained in the Thelemites, sort of occult school, uh, Blavatsky, all that sort of stuff, and converted to Catholicism late in his life and became a hermit, basically a monk. Um, and he took all of his knowledge of the occult and hermeticism and sort of put that into the line of patristic Catholicism. And you know, in a true alchemical way. And he did a brilliant job of it. And this is a book I would recommend to people who are not even interested in the tarot because it's only ostensibly superficially about the tarot, um, which is to say it is exactly about the tarot because the tarot isn't about the tarot. The tarot is just a means of accessing deeper esoteric hermetic knowledge. And so what he does in this book, he takes all the major arcana and just ostensibly starts to talk about what's in the card. But then he'll start talking about Hegelian metaphysics um, and Catholic metaphysics and various saints and um, the Bible. And he'll go through all these meandering meditations and then relate it finally back to the card. And it always relates back to the card perfectly. And in order to understand the minor arcana, you really, if you're learning tarot, you should, you should just take all the minor arcana out of your deck and put them on the side. And if you want to read people, just read with the major arcana because the minor arcana, the understanding of the minor arcana descends and almost whatever tarotic methodology you're using, it descends out of the understanding of the major arcana. And the major arcana are the essential archetypes of the hero's journey. It starts with the fool and you end up in the world, ultimate individuation, which is to say, understanding the godhood within oneself and going through theosis and returning to the divine feminine masculine within ourselves. Okay, so... That that whole process you understand through reading mythology, through reading history, through reading philosophy, through reading spirituality. The tarot is a relation, basically an essentialized language for all of that. And that's why that book is so foundational and so good at really penetrating into that deeper insight. Now, it is a bit dense, but a lot of it, even if you're not trained in philosophy, you can, under, you can get a lot out of it. It was originally written anonymously, and his name is Tom Berg was only revealed later. Uh, but it, that was, that would be the, the go-to place. Once you feel comfortable with understanding the major arcana out of a book like that, um, in sort of picking up your own intuition and reading other people, then you can start to just Google tarot stuff and you're going to come across a lot of new HBS inevitably. But once you understand it sufficiently, you're able to discern what is valuable and what is true from just the weird foyer effect BS. Um, and at that point, you can actually start to safely peruse, um, I guess, the weird, you know, top 10 Google result page stuff. And you'll, you'll start to find your own, uh, you know, resources you go to that you rely on and you trust. There are tons and tons of tarot books out there. And um, I, I just feel the safest foundation is in, is in Tom Berg's. Now, would you, to demonstrate um, the New Age BS, as you call it, would you give us a, a new age BS interpretation of those cards relating to Hank? I'll, I'll do something very quick. I'll, okay, I'll just, just like to demonstrate yeah, how. Yeah, so th these aren't necessarily legitimate. I'm just going to sort of pull these out of my ass here. Okay, but so so judgment is like, oh, yes, you know, you you need to uh, you need to take this medicine. Okay, you need to uh, you need to go to this location here and you need to sacrifice a pig. Okay, and then your wife won't cheat on you anymore, and you can get all the you can get all the the lottery winning lottery numbers. Okay, and uh, you see the these swords here. Yeah, your friends they're trying to uh, 
backstab you. Okay, so what you need to do is poison their children. Okay, <laughs> and uh, you got the tin of cups here. So what you need to do, you need to go and buy this farmland. Okay, with the the money you get from the the victim money of killing your 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 friend's children. Okay, and uh, then you have to uh, you have to release the sexual passion. You got too much of your uh, your sperm. You know you need to. Uh, you need to uh, choke the chicken, as they say, okay? And then, you know, you got this this king here, and he's all like, oh, do this, do that, you know. Well, that's your boss at work, you know, and you really need to uh, put him in his place, you know. Maybe poison his children, you know. You know? <laughs> all right, so buy pig, sacrifice it, get some poison somehow. Uh, I'm and being kill a bit facetious, yeah. but I mean, this is basically what it boils down to. Yeah, yeah. interesting. <laughs> Have you ever personally experienced any of those encounters? I did I did want to say this. So when I first started reading tarot, when I was in New York City, I went to a speakeasy called Brazen Head, which was just like the best place ever. And I would just sit in the back and, and read tarot. And basically it was a speakeasy owned by this book collector who was basically the reincarnation of Hemingway. He just smoked a pipe and collected books. And um, we would just go there Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday nights, stay up to like 2 a.m. meeting all these foreigners and talking about books and poetry and philosophy and history. And it was an awesome place. And, and you know, Bob Dylan, Freud everywhere, whatever. <clears throat> and I just sat in the back reading tarot in the smoky room. And uh, people would come in, strangers, and they would ask me to read their tarot. And I stopped doing it because um, people start getting freaked out. Like they said... Mm -hmm. So not like your reaction where I was right in some ways, wrong in some ways. They said I was not only eerily correct, but I knew things about them that there was no possible way I could know. And I assured them that I wasn't reading their mind. I wasn't working with the spirit. This was just what I was going off with the cards. And I had a woman freak out because she came in with her boyfriend and I had to find a way to diplomatically say that what the cards were sort of showing me was that... Um, she was cheating on him. Yeah. And I didn't say this directly, but I said it in a tactful way to which she could understand that I understood that. And she started to freak out and just say, there's no way you can know these things about me. That they're true, but there's no way you can know them. Mm -hmm. And she just like stormed off. And so after that, I stopped reading tarot for a long time because I thought maybe I am starting to access some weird occult knowledge, you know, like some spirit is telling me these things. I didn't think it was, but spirits are very good at being able to convince you that it's coming from yourself when it's actually coming from them. Um, I'm not. Am I answering your question? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you are. <laughs> okay. Would you say that that was more of an intuitive process or was it more like she was very obvious? Like say she might have seen this picture of the man in green and said, oh, this uh, friend is walking away because he feels <laughs> guilty about yeah. cheating on him. <laughs> yeah, basically. I mean, but also it is intuition. It's both. Um, and... Uh, I, again, yeah, I think I think it's mostly just having intuition. And intuition is a muscle. I mean, it's a gift, and some people just have better intuition than others. Yeah. But it is a muscle that you exercise. And, and tarot, really, at the end of the day, is kind of like lifting weights for your intuition. So you think you, like, practiced so much that you just got, like, absurdly good at it, and you kind of found that dangerous almost? Yeah, or or I was afraid. This was right when I was starting to get into Catholicism, too, when I before I converted to being a Catholic. And... I was becoming very self-aware of demonic spirit. I mean, I already knew demons existed as a Platonist, but I, I started to become like paranoid, basically. Like behind every, I became a Gnostic in the sense that reality is a deception by the devil. And, you know, I took this very like hard staunch traditionalist Catholic view. 
which is like there's a devil in every corner, basically. And I think that's a very bad way and in itself its own demon is, is is behind that attitude. But and you see this in a lot of Protestants too. But um back then that's where I was heading into. And so I became so paranoid of all these things. I was like, you know, maybe, maybe there is a spirit behind this that's telling me these things. Um, you know, thankfully you said some of these interpretations were wrong. So that means, you know, this either I don't have a spirit telling me these things or it's a very dumb spirit. So yeah. <laughs> or um, I'm just lying. You never know. <laughs> right. So <laughs> Um, so yeah, I mean, again, in so far you want to entertain a spirit, you know, being behind someone who's reading the tarot, it's like, well, sure. But that spirit is just as likely to be behind you going into McDonald's. You know, you're, right. you're no more likely to get possessed by what I just did here than you are going into McDonald's. I mean, many people do get possessed when they go into McDonald's, they get possessed huh. by mammon, they get possessed by the demon of gluttony. Right. So is that like just when you order a specific thing? Like, should I stay away from the McRib or... <laughs> No, if anything, the McRib is an exorcism. <laughs> so, no, I'm just I'm just speaking in the sense of like there there are all, all demons are the the lords and the of the passions. And every time you unite yourself to a passion or a sin or whatever you want to call it, you're you're uniting yourself to a demon. You're not going full on possessed. You're you're going through what we would call in, in the West a obsession. And the more you feed that obsession the more that demon starts to dominate and have control over what appears to be your so-called free will. But it, we often do things that is really just a demon suggesting something to us. And the more you commit a certain sin, the more you align yourself to be entrapped in that demonic deception. And the more that your will stops to be free. But often the people who think they're most free are exactly the people who are most slaved. Because especially in the West, we have this idea of freedom as being being able to do what we want to do without these limitations, you know, being your own boss or whatever, not having to worry about religion and religious morals. This always, this always ends up translating into being more and more enslaved by these passions, mostly unconscious that we're not even aware of from a purely psychological point of view to say nothing of metaphysics mm -hmm. and just to say anything of metaphysics to say, well, it's actually we're just doing the whims of all these demons that we fed through our passions. Yeah. Now, I don't want to go off topic or anything, although you did, um, it seemed like you were lumping passion and sin as being synonymous. Yes, um, they are in yeah. the church fathers, although we okay. have to understand what the church fathers mean by passion, because it's not exactly easily translatable into the modern connotation of passion. Like if someone paints and is very good at painting, I might say you have a true passion for painting. Is that what the church fathers are talking about? No. When the church fathers say passion, they mean it from the Greek, which is to say to be acted upon. Okay, so basically, we're always impassioned. We're either impassioned by the energies of God or we're impassioned by the energies of demons. There's really no middle ground, okay? Most people are both. Um, well, everyone's both, but most people are more overtly both, okay? Um, and passion is these raw emotional energies that come from the fall in which we're subjected by nature. So before the fall, Adam was you know, this, this um, independent black woman who need no man, you know, he, he was, he doesn't need Eve, right? He, he's, he's, the reason the fathers, some of the fathers say that God even creates Eve as a helpmate is in so far God foreknows that Adam would fall, which is to say if, if God knew Adam wanted to fall, he never would have created woman out of Adam. Mm -hmm. Adam would have always been remained man and woman. Um, he would have remained, for lack of a better word, as a um, uh, hermaphrodite. But because God knows for knows the fall, he has to create a helpmate, uh, 
uh, so Adam is not independent. But after the fall, uh, Adam becomes subject to nature. And that doesn't just mean physically. It's not, it's not like, like before the fall, and you see this in the lives of the saints, Adam could walk through fire. He could be naked in cold wind or in cold water and not drown. He could be submerged in water and not drown, right? Uh, not freeze. He was not subject physically to nature. The other aspect is that he's not subject emotionally to nature. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in at the very least, you know, modern psychologists are correct when they s- talk about the degree to which our everyday psychology is affected by our diet, the chemicals in our head, you know, the sort of pills we take. Okay, that isn't the only thing, but that's definitely something there. But what they fail to understand is that that's only true because of the fall. Um, before the fall, Adam wouldn't have been affected by drugs or his diet or any of these psychologically. I mean, he wouldn't be affected by these things because his mind itself was not subject to nature. Okay. So after the fall, um, our minds, our very psychical, spiritual being, they're, they're really the same thing, um, become subject to natural, physical um, elements, uh, chemi- chemi- chemistry that acts upon our bodies. Um, and these passions begin to control us. And when we feed that passion, these desires um, that are not unified to, to God, to the energies of God, um, that's what the fathers are really talking about with passion. So it's not, so yes, passions and sin are synonymous, but passions in, in this context is not exactly synonymous with passions in the modern word, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. Yeah. And by all means, go off topic. I mean, that's what we do in this podcast all the time anyway. So Nice. I think we are at the end of the 15 minutes. We are. Oh my goodness. We've actually, the recording has been 57 minutes. Okay, wow. Okay. But I mean, obviously some of that was before we started talking. So it'll be about 15 minutes. So any closing remarks from either of you? I've enjoyed this. Um, It's been, it's been fun. All right. Well, um, I guess just... Don't go to any tarot readers. <laughs> like, again, uh, just because I'm saying like tarot is uh, originally a legitimate thing, uh, it's it's not something you should fool around with in regards to uh, just going to a tarot reader or psychic or whatever, because that is very dangerous. All right. See you next time. <laughs>